What is domain thinking, Lockie? So domain thinking is where I have been trying to figure out how to explain this clearly and I'm going to give it my best shot right now. (laughs) So domain thinking is where humans tend to attach ideas, thoughts and things to a physical domain or a physical area, I believe. So whether it's, say, you wear a soccer outfit at soccer, you don't feel comfortable doing that in a business meeting because that's not the attire of a business meeting, for example. You feel comfortable doing that at a soccer pitch because that's what soccer is. That's the agreed construct that we've made about soccer. Well, the same goes for the type of skills that we apply on the soccer pitch and the teamwork that we use and the way we approach getting better. We won't transfer that to a business context because it's in a different domain. Our brains just have trouble with that sort of what he calls in this book abstraction. And that this is a skill that can be learnt, it's within us, but it's not natural to us. And he gives the example, which we'll probably talk about a little bit further on, about these villages that was a professor from somewhere, anyway, we'll find it, sorry, I'm a bit loose on the facts, from where this guy's from. But he goes to some villages that are remote and tries to do experiments on them surrounding trying to find out why the modern people score better on IQ tests than people from, say, previous generations. And it's got to do with the fact that they, the modern world teaches you to build this abstraction skill, mm-hmm. to be able to connect different concepts, but not just by what's obviously directly in front of you and related to what you're doing. And so... That is a simple version of this domain dependence where as you get better at that, so I can tell that that's a cup, this is a cup and that's a cup, even though they all look different. Or you could connect these four cups in concept in probably 10 different ways, but someone from, say, pre-World War I would have more trouble with that. But you can take that concept further and start to connect different concepts and theories and stuff from thermodynamics into how a business works. You can connect the way that cactus grows to, you know, Mm. um, how you learn things and grow yourself. And and that's how you break down the domain. So often you don't actually, it's super powerful because you don't actually need to think of new ideas. You just need to have the wherewithal to connect abstract concepts and also go looking for them in other areas the answers to a lot of your problems that you're struggling with now say in your work or what have you someone in it has probably solved those and you just got to go look and someone, steal it someone in the on the soccer teams probably solved them yeah you know? like, they, they have they have related problems in the, in the soccer game yeah that, you know whether that's around team management that applies to team management in a business context. But because it's in a different domain, we often don't look at it because we think it's irrelevant. No, and this is where building a big mental network is really important. And this is something I've been trying to think about a lot too, is that if you build a giant network of ideas in your mind and connect these different areas, you can start to solve problems that you couldn't before just by this kind of comparison that you can do. Great. Well, we we know one major notable example out of the book that he touches on, which is Charles Darwin. 
and Charles Darwin was renowned for how many pen pals he had. I can't recall the number, but he had there were thirteen different like categories of pen pals that were kind of pulled out by the mm. psychologist who um, ended up going through all these journals. And I think he actually wrote a biography on him. Mm. He'd love Twitter. Oh, he'd absolutely love it. And hashtag, 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 uh, hashtag molecular biology. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is some nerdy jokes. And um, hashtag HMAS Beagle. <laughs> and and he ended up drawing upon all of these different pen pals he had to try and come up with different formulations for why the world was the way it was. There's one one particular example where he was trying to. As part of his evolution, no, sorry, part of his evolutionary theory, right, on, on natural selection. But he was actually talking to geologists and he was talking to mm. other biologists and he was talking to people in completely different domains to try and get their perspectives and understandings for why these things were. Triangulate the thinking. Correct. Get just totally unique perspectives. Yeah. And the other thing to note is that because this is a human inherent bias almost that we've got, everyone does it. So there's a massive opportunity if you can realise that and build the muscle that breaks through that because you're just going to be able to do something that no one, no one else is really doing and that has huge benefits. Yeah, and I think the really important thing is the failability of our memories right? and recognising the failability of our memories, which Darwin also did at the time. So he wouldn't just be writing these letters and building these networks and communicating with these people he would receive letters back. He would cut things out from their letters. He would, you know, paste them onto his notes. And he ended up with this kind of bewildered compilation of different things spread across heaps of different sheets of paper. But there's something very powerful in that. You know, he's both going through the act of exerting energy and writing these things down for himself. He's then pulling in other people's concepts, other people's ideas. He's putting the physical, mm-hmm. you know, the physical touch of other things, you know, seeds and, you know, plant material and things onto his pages and putting them there for reference so that he can come back to them and draw on them later on down the track. On, say, the the Monday notes and Darwin's pen pals and kind of scrapping together these scrapbooks of notes that he was doing. The thing that I really took away from that was there's an act of writing things down and there's also an act of building almost your own encyclopedia that you understand, that you know your way around. And, And so for me, I use Evernote to do that. And just now that was, that kind of really emphasized to me the importance of, continuing to take the notes mm. i love evernote because of the tagging system well you've got me on Evernote now mm. um, so i'm gonna try and learn it so i can get better at note taking because mine are all over the place and i go i go back to i go back to notes you know when i first started using it i'm like where's all my tags on this you know <laughs> i'm missing all these different tags well the system kind of develops and you build this this continual network of different things you, you then can you know that's kind of a digital version. And I think there's something lost going from the physical to the digital, but with the digital, you've got efficient searching. I think mm. there's faster to capture things and whatever, but you miss the kind of tactile, being mm. able to see all the pages spread yeah. out, nature, yeah. Yeah. which hopefully isn't too big of a drawback because then you compare it to the likes of um, Robert Greene's or Ryan Holiday's system for writing books, like what, what they do to gather that. I don't know that. What's that? So as they're going through books, you know, they, they will 
conduct a process of writing notes and things. So this is, this is very much that conversation with the author. So whenever you're reading a book, Farnham Street blog writes a lot about this and Ryan Holiday writes about this. Lots of different people write about these different things and you can search all that pretty easily. There's actually a really good book written called How to Read a Book. That's the, cool. the author's name escapes me right now, but he covers off on this type of stuff. So they're having a conversation with the author as they're actively reading. Now, this is typically in the space of nonfiction, but still applies in fiction because there's some great constructions of you know, society or critiques of the way things are in fiction, fictional works too. And having this kind of engaged conversation with the author through notes then finds its way onto their cram card system that they use. So they basically go through then the notes a week or two later after they've read the book. See, that gap's good. The gap is so important. There's there's something about the space and the Mm. time because when you're coming back to these notes, you're in a slightly different mindset. You're in a different place to when you originally read it and some of the stuff will be garbage. You just toss it out or ignore it completely. But some of the stuff will definitely stick Mm. and that's the stuff that they capture or that they want to write and they you you can read more about his process. There's a lot more nuance to it, particularly how they group things together and whatever. But this is how they go to build up the information for writing, you know, some of their masterpieces like The 48 Laws of Power by Mm. Robert Grant. Employed this very system to how he got to write that book. That's cool. So now there's like emphasis on a digital version of that to create your own Mm. cross-domain network of knowledge. Damn right. And you know your way around your network Mm. better than anyone else. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is just it needs no design. You just got to be curious and try and find out things that are interesting to you. But the key that once you do read something, I believe, is that you connect it. It's no use if it's a node in the middle of floating in midair. You've got to try and just start to feel out what what is this like? What does this concept remind me of? Where else have I seen this? And you can start to make connections in your mind. And that started happening to me more recently when I've upped my reading game a bit is that I'll start to feel this thing, hey, that's a bit like that, you know. That reminds me of X, Y, B of Y. Another one of those. Another one of those, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so and in that way that was, that was a you can dial, better, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, you can better understand the thing you're reading about because we love to compare things. We learn through comparison, you know, like how we can see one colour better on top of another unless you're colourblind. And so you can start building this network up and you better understand both sides of the node that you're con- you've put the connection from one to another. Is there a point where you don't need to learn some of this stuff because you can just Google it? Are we moving into a world where you're plugged into the computer? But I guess that's where the concepts become even more important because that's how that will be the last thing that robots are able to do is that level of abstraction and deal with complex inputs they, they actually touch on this in the book and I've got a mini prediction coming out of this um, dangerous dangerous territory yeah, go for it so it talks about a guy called Don Swanson and he he was becoming concerned about increasing specialization that was happening in the world you know that was obvious in the world and that it would lead to and this is in the academic world and you know let alone other spaces um It'd lead to publications that catered only to a very small group of specialists and inhibit creativity. 
the disparity between the total quantity of recorded knowledge and limited human capacity to assimilate it, it not only in, was enormous but grows unrelentingly or unremittingly, I should say. So he was wondering how can frontiers be pushed if one day it will take a lifetime just to reach that level of specialization in a domain. Hmm. And so the way I saw this, which which isn't certainly isn't new, but is that we're already doing we're already dealing with this and we're already dealing with this like who doesn't use a computer at work now? Hmm. You know, for what they do. And the computers provide this significant form of leverage for how much we're able to achieve. And so into the future, there will be continuing artificial intelligence and different technology that kind of acts as the tools and what some of the people are that we currently manage in an organization. Mm. So some of the people that we manage in an organization are going to continue to be replaced by technology, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that we can't still be managing the same number of people. It's just that you'll be having your own technology that you're leveraging and every single one of those people will have their technology that they're leveraging, which is doing work that used to be done by people in the same positions. We're already in that place. Yeah. But that's going to just continue to increase, which means that the computers become the specialists and yeah. the people, the workers become the puppeteers. Yeah. That's I don't know interesting. What, don't know what happens after the singularity, mate, but, but that's the point of that. <laughs> Who knows? Domain, domain tech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... That's some pretty deep thinking. And just, just to touch on, because we've touched on him about six times this episode already, so what's another one hurt? Taleb, is what happens when a black swan occurs in those situations? In those situations in when the, the tiny little flaws in each of those various technologies kind of align themselves, you know, which happens doesn't happen very often, but might happen, but it just takes a lot more time to happen. As a result, the impacts would be, I don't know what the impacts would be, but it would have to be significant. Yeah, because you're not dealing because you're in a leveraged world. You're not in a a world of dealing with what the human mind can. Well, that's an interesting point to my networks come in is that you need to build networks. However, they need to have some form of siloing. They can't be worldwide networks. You've got to. It's probably better to have lots of little networks sometimes because it can mean that a black swan can't just take it all out, you know. Capping it's not a single point of failure or whatever. 